0: Good morning, everybody. So glad to see you guys. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship this morning. Man, great job today, and so fun just to to worship Jesus together. If you're new here, thank you for being here. My name's Dan, and I would love to meet you after the service if I haven't met you before. And we are reading through the book of John, and um, we're almost to the end. And... Yeah, yeah, it's been a, it's been a long journey. Um, but uh, there's still a lot to, of great stuff to get to. So if you have your Bible, you'll need it in a few minutes. We'll be looking at John twenty, twenty four 24 to 31. And uh, let me start with this, though. In In the first chapter of the first gospel written that we have, which is the gospel of Mark, Uh, Mark tells us how Jesus began his public ministry. Uh, In Mark 1, 1st chapter, 14 to 15, it says, Now after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and believe in the gospel. So, Mark writes that Jesus began his public ministry by proclaiming the gospel of God throughout Galilee. And Jesus commanded his listeners to, to repent and to believe in this gospel. And the same is true for, for those of us here in this room this morning. Uh, through this living word, which we call the Bible or Scripture, Jesus commands you and me to repent and believe in the gospel. He says this to Christians. He says this to non-Christians. This is for us to repent and believe in the gospel. So what is this gospel that Jesus commands us to believe? The gospel is a word that means good news. And Jesus commands us to believe his good news, okay? Because it could be gospels about all sorts of different things, but he calls us to be to believe his gospel, the gospel of his good news. So what is this good news that belongs to Jesus? Well, the very Core of Jesus' good news uh, for us is the message that even though every human being on the earth has turned away from God, even though we have all disobeyed God, disbelieved God, even though we have separated ourselves from God on earth and in eternity, God still loves us. And at great cost to Himself, He has provided a way for us to come back to Him to be friends with him and to live in peace forever. And God the Father sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live and to die on our behalf, to take away the sin in us that condemns us and that separates us from our God. And he sent Jesus to rise from the dead in victory over everything that our disobedience and that our disbelief has chained us to. Things like Satan and the power of sin and death and eternal hell. This is the central message of the gospel that Jesus told us to believe in. So because he he loves us, he wants us to believe. He, He wants us to enjoy eternal life with him and to enjoy eternal freedom and eternal honor, which he earned for us. And Jesus gives all of that to us when we stop. When we talk about repenting, it means when we, we have a change of mind. We stop trusting in the world to be everything we think it should be for us. We stop trusting in ourselves to be what we want us to be for us. And instead, we turn to Jesus and trust him to be everything for us that we need in life and in eternity. That's what it means to repent and to believe, and the majority of the world does not believe Jesus' gospel. If you figure there's 2 billion people in, on the earth right now that would claim to be Christians, okay, let's just say all those people actually were Christians, and there's 7 billion people in the world, right? So obviously, you are a minority if you believe that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for your sins, and that he rose from the dead for your eternal justification, But simply because you're a minority doesn't mean that you're in error, okay? And actually, this is the way it's always been. The New Testament says that Jesus had a lot of followers, but most likely, many of them were not believers, most of them, probably. There were, there were lots of people fascinated with Jesus. There were lots of people who wanted stuff from Jesus. There were lots of people who wanted to, to see his miracles. But we read that as soon as Jesus opened his mouth and told them about the good news of the kingdom and, and spoke the truth to them, many people found Jesus offensive and intolerant. And it says that they quickly abandoned him. And it's no different today. Many people today like the idea of Jesus and like the idea of instilling Christian values and morals into our kids. But when people hear in Scripture what Jesus actually said, some of the things he said, they find it offensive and not very seeker-friendly. And they begin to skip those parts of Scripture that they don't want to believe because those parts don't make them feel very good about God. Many of us like to hear that God loves us, he died for my sins, but you know what, I think it's pretty harsh to share what Jesus said, that nobody can come to him unless, or nobody can come to the Father unless they trust in Jesus. That sounds pretty intolerant. To be clear here, Jesus, um, he's not offensive or sharp with his words for the sake of being offensive or sharp with his words. There's no virtue in that. Some people, though, find Jesus sharp and offensive because he says he is the light of the truth of God. And when he shines his truth onto people, he disrupts the darkness of their belief, which they liked. And if people want to stay in that darkness the darkness of their disbelief, then they have no choice but to run the other way from Jesus because everywhere Jesus goes, he projects the light of truth and the light of God's love into their lives. And that messes with people's darkness. In John 3, Jesus says it this way, the light, talking about himself, has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So because human beings disbelieve by uh, God by, both by nature and by choice, uh, we're inclined to disbelieve him even when there is sufficient evidence to believe him. And according to John, in this gospel, who is one of Jesus' closest disciples, called the, he's called the disciple Jesus loved, and who writes this eyewitness account, according to him, this is one of the reasons why Jesus appeared to so many people in his physical body after he rose from the dead to give those people an opportunity to see Jesus, to touch Jesus, to eat with Jesus, so that they might trust in him, and so that they would go ahead and write about their encounters with the resurrected Jesus, so that we would read those accounts and trust in Jesus too. And according to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, after rising from the dead, Jesus first appeared to Mary Magdalene on that Sunday morning, what we call Easter. And then in the afternoon on that same day, he took a long walk with two of his followers on the road to a place called Emmaus. And then later that evening, he appeared to 10 of his 12 disciples inside their locked room in Jerusalem. But unfortunately, one of the living disciples named Thomas missed out on that appearance. Thomas was was out getting one of those half-priced milkshakes at, after 8 p.m. at Sonic or, or something. I don't know. I don't know where he was, but he missed out on kind of the most important event in history. Um, we don't actually know where he was that night. I didn't say that. Um, but we do know he did not believe his friends when they said that Jesus came to them. Thomas disbelieved the other disciples. Thomas disbelieved in the reality of the resurrected Christ. And so this morning we're going to read about what happened to Thomas a week after that. And if you've got your Bible, again, we'll be in John 20, 24 to 31. Um, let's ask the Lord to help us as we read his word. Dear God, we... We thank you for telling us the truth in, in your word. We thank you for being kind to us and patient with us and faithful to us, way more faithful to us than we have been to you. Um, we thank you for being gracious with us, uh, with disbelievers, with which all of us were at one point. We thank you for giving to so many of us faith to believe your gospel and to trust in you for this eternal life. We just ask that as we read your word today, you would meet us where we're at and show us your glory, show us yourself by the power of your Holy Spirit in such a powerful way that it changes us today. Please turn disbelievers into believers and please transform our doubt, our doubts into trust in you. We ask that you would please keep away Satan and his demons from us, and please combat any thought in our minds that is not from you. And God, it's our desire that you would be glorified now in this place, and we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Let's get the Bible out. John 20, 24 to 31. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. So Thomas... Uh, refused to believe his friends, right? And let's go back and reread here verses 24 to 25. We're going to pick this out one verse at a time. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, I place my finger into the mark of the nails place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So he refused to believe his friends, and he essentially calls them a bunch of liars. And, and then Thomas lays out three conditions for what must happen in order for him to believe them and subsequently to believe Jesus. First, he says, he must able, be able to see for himself the mark of the nails in the hands of the resurrected Jesus, Second, he must be able to place his finger into the mark of the nails in the hands of the resurrected Jesus. And third, he must be able to place his hand into Jesus' side where he was stabbed by the soldiers. And Thomas says, unless all of this happens, I will never believe. Thomas doesn't say unless I see and feel Jesus' scars, I'm gonna have a really hard time believing you guys. He says, if I don't see and touch the scars on Jesus' flesh and blood, resurrected body, then I will never believe you, and I will never believe that Jesus is alive. That is a bold statement. (laughs) And remember that when Thomas said this, he had no guarantee that Jesus would reappear in his resurrected body. And so Thomas puts it all on the line here. I mean, this is a crisis of faith. His future as a follower of Jesus Christ rests on whether his demands for proof are met. And obviously, Thomas's example here is not one that any of us should follow. We should not tell other people or tell God, unless you do this, or unless you show me this, or unless I hear God tell me this, I will never trust him. Because God has already given us his Bible, in our own language, which includes all of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, and as well as a, as numerous uh, trustworthy accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection and His ascension into heaven, and God has already given us in His word enough evidence to trust him. Okay. So what we see in Thomas here is that this reinforces the truth of Psalm 51. Which says that from the moment we are conceived, we are disbelievers in God. And the fact that we are this way is a result of the curse of sin, which Adam and Eve brought upon all humans in the Garden of Eden. Ever since Adam and Eve disbelieved God, all of us have disbelieved God. We sin against God because we are sinners from the moment of conception, is what Psalm 51 says. So what this means is that unless God breaks into our lives and does something for us, which we cannot do for ourselves, unless he supernaturally gives us a new life, makes us born again, then we are not going to believe God in our natural state. Just like Thomas, we will always say, unless I see this evidence for myself, or that evidence, or another sign, then I won't believe. And even if God did show you more evidence, we well, see in Scripture, you still might not believe Him. But think about this. Matthew 28, 16 to 17 says that, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they, had, when they saw Him, they worshiped Him, but some doubted Okay? This is after the resurrection. This is as Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven, and they're there. It says that even after the disciples had seen Jesus and talked with Jesus, eaten dinner and breakfast with Jesus on the beach, even though they saw him standing right in front of them, some of them still doubted Jesus. Unless God breaks into our lives and supernaturally makes us born again, we're not going to believe Or trust in Jesus in this current sinful condition. That's part of the curse of sin. So, what this means is that if you're in that camp and you don't believe God yet, if you haven't trusted Jesus, then ask God to come into your life to give you faith to trust Him. Okay? Don't ask God to show you new evidence. Ask God to show you his glory through the Bible that he's already given to you. I'm a strong believer in in apologetics, which means defending the Christian faith. I'm a strong advocate of thinking through the Christian faith rationally. I think there's strong biblical evidence and examples that rationally investigating the truth about Christianity is a path that God takes many people on in order to bring them into a place where he gives them faith. But at the end of the day, we don't need new evidence. We don't need new revelations in order to believe God. We need God to make us born again through faith in the gospel that he's already given us. Okay? And as we're about to see, following Jesus is not a leap of faith into the darkness of a lack of evidence. Christianity was founded upon remarkable historical and empirical evidence. John 20, verse 26 says, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So here we go again. Now that Thomas is in the room with them, Jesus did the same thing that he did a week before. He supernaturally enters the locked room with his physical body. He stands among them in his body that only a few days earlier had been beaten and scourged and hung on a cross and stabbed in the side. And he talks to them. And he blesses them with his words and says, peace be with you. So, before we go any further, we need to just sit here and look at this and say, wow, God is really gracious. That Jesus shows up to Thomas and the disciples and to all of us by coming to us and showing up in our lives, he is really good and gracious. Because Jesus doesn't have to do that, he doesn't owe us his friendship. He doesn't owe us more evidence so that we can decide whether we think he is who he says he is. We are not the judge. God is the judge. But just like Jesus did for the disciples in this passage, he has revealed himself to his followers through this gospel and he gives himself to us day and night. He He puts a spirit in us, he says, that lives in us. And as God the Father makes himself available to us, um, day and night, we can pray whenever we want to God. We do not need a priest. We could go straight to God and just say, Jesus, this is what's on my heart right now because Jesus did this for us. And Jesus intercedes, he says, I'm in heaven. This is where he's at right now. Physically, he ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father, the majesty on the high. And what's he doing? Interceding for you and me. He's making our prayers effective. He's praying for us when we don't even know what to pray. Wow. So we might think or feel at times that that Jesus is not with us, that he's not available to us because we can't see him. But... Just because we can't see him does not mean that he's not with us, that he's not available to us, that he's not listening to us, that he's not helping us. That's, that is where our faith comes in. It's believing those truths that Jesus is with us and available to us and listening to us and helping us because he died and rose again. And even though he's physically in heaven right now instead of on earth, it does not mean he does not exist God has come to us. He has offered to us eternal friendship with Himself through faith in Christ. And the reason He's done this is because of the riches of His grace. His grace. It's a gift from God, which none of us could ever earn. It's all because of God's grace. Verse 27 says Then He said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand. And place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So, do you remember Jesus or Thomas's three demands? To see, the, to see the nail scars in Jesus' hands, to touch the scars in his hands, and to put his hand in Jesus' side. Well, without flinching, Jesus responds to each one of those three demands. And he says, Put your finger here. See my hands, and go ahead and put your hand in my side where i was stabbed. And then he says do not disbelieve but believe. Can you imagine what Thomas must have been experiencing? I mean seriously, think about that. I don't know if you've ever been in an experience where you're like hit by so many overwhelming emotions that like make your head feel weird? Like I mean this is this must have been what Thomas was feeling. I mean, Jesus is here calling Thomas out. In a loving way. I mean, I would have been scared and amazed and it must have just seemed surreal to Thomas, but Jesus here was no ghost. This was Jesus back from the dead in his flesh and blood body. And many of the writers of the New Testament testify that they saw and or touched the resurrected Jesus that's why the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 1.16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made to known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Okay? Get out of your head any of the junk you hear that the Bible was written in the 200, like 200 years after Jesus. That's not true. The Bible was written within the lifetime of the, of the eyewitnesses. Who are with Jesus, okay? You need to know that. And that's why Luke begins his gospel by saying that he compiled these eyewitnesses' accounts of those who witnesses Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And Luke says he did this for the sake of his readers, so that we might have certainty about the things we have been taught. And this is why John writes in 1 John 1:1 to 4: That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete, okay? So the gospel, they're saying this, this the gospel of Jesus was not a story made up by people. It was not a fable that appeared that was unverifiable, Okay? Jesus really lived, he really died on the cross, he really rose from the dead, and the credibility of the finished work of Jesus was tested and approved by Thomas, by the disciples, and by hundreds of other eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And in light of this evidence, Jesus tells you the same thing he told Thomas. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Believe. Other translations might say, do not keep unbelieving, but believe. Or do not doubt, or stay in your doubt, but believe me, because I'm trustworthy, I'm true. And in verse 28, Thomas responds to him. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God... See, Thomas is just one example of a person who was adamantly set on disbelieving God, disproving God, and the human testimonies about God he didn't believe. But when God graciously showed up to Thomas in such a powerful way, Thomas's disbelief crumbled. Okay? It actually, it died. That's, that is a more um, theologically accurate picture of what happened. His dif- disbelief died, and Jesus replaced it with faith. Because Jesus made him born again. But by the grace of Jesus, we see Thomas here, he does a complete 180. And Thomas makes one of the most detailed and explicit statements of personal faith that we have in the Bible. Thomas completely owns his faith in Jesus here. This is not abstract what he's saying about himself, what he's saying about what he believes about Jesus, or what he's what he's saying about the identity of Jesus. Jesus isn't just some teacher or miracle worker to Thomas. Thomas uses the word, my, twice. And he declares, my Lord, my God. And Thomas goes way beyond admitting that Jesus is just a man back from the dead. Thomas tells Jesus, you are my Lord. You're my Savior. You're the Messiah sent from God to save the world from sin. Thomas tells Jesus, you're my God. You're not just a man. You really are the one true God. You are the God that the Jewish people have been worshiping and following for thousands of years. It is you, Jesus. And does Jesus correct him? No. He's like, yeah. Right? Right? May God help us to see Jesus the same way. And to have the same joy in Jesus that Thomas has here in this passage. So remember this. Think about this. Thomas had spent countless hours with Jesus during three years of his public ministry. And and yet it appears that Thomas didn't fully trust him or in the entire gospel work of Jesus until this encounter. And what that tells us is this. It gives us a, a pretty important warning. That it is possible to spend countless hours Examining Jesus, studying Jesus, studying the Bible, and still not be spiritually changed or saved. And here at Cedar Home, we we love the Bible. We believe it's God's perfect word without error, that it is entirely true. And I strongly encourage you to read the Bible much and to memorize its verses and to meditate on its meaning. And at the same time, do not fool yourself into thinking that your study itself is saving you or transforming you. Because okay? in John five thirty-eight to 40, Jesus told the Pharisees, who were the most studied of all. He says, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, that you may have life. So what we need to do is to read the word, to study God's word much, and we need for our reading and our studying to make us love Jesus more and become more like him, okay? So if you think that it's really easy, because the Bible's so awesome, we can believe that, man, that Jesus just wants me to study this one word so that I can figure out Jesus, or this one passage so that I can arrive. I can figure out the one right interpretation of every passage of Scripture that saints for 2,000 years haven't figured out and or agree on. If you believe that, you're missing the point. Because we can't figure out God perfectly in this life. And that's why Paul, one of the greatest theologians ever, wrote in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. So hear me right. Yes, read the Bible. Yes, know that everything we need for salvation and for the pursuit of Christ-likeness is clear in Scripture. It is not murky. Everything we need, we have God has given to us in his word. But as you read the word, don't miss the most crucial thing that it tells you to do. To repent and to believe in Jesus. So that you can then love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Because it is through faith in Jesus that you're saved. It is through faith in Jesus that you are made like him, sanctified. Bible study without faith and repentance is a very little profit for the Christian. So, practically, when you spend time reading God's Word, it's a really good idea to pray before you do that. You don't have to, but it's a good idea to ask God this is why we pray, this is why we pray before, why I pray for us before I preach. Because I don't want to assume, well, I'll just come up and, and do this. Like, Part of the abiding in Jesus is resting in Jesus all the time, saying, God, I need your help every moment. And we're about to read the word, and we know you're here already, but we want to acknowledge it, and we want to ask you to help us. And we do this when we're reading the Bible on ourselves. We ask God uh, to, 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 to speak to us, to convict us. God, would you transform me through what I'm about to read? And then while you're reading the word and something sticks out to you, Stop right then and there. This isn't, a, this isn't a race. And thank God and ask him, God, help me to do this or help me not to do what you don't want me to do. Help me to follow you, okay? I was getting confusing. And thank you, Jesus, for being everything for me that I can't be. Even though I'm, I want to pursue you and even though you tell me be perfect as I am perfect, We both know I'm not going to be perfect in this life. Thank you for being everything for me, Jesus, as I run after you. And when you're finished reading the word, ask God to help you remember what you've read and to meditate on its meaning throughout the day and, and to use that to change you and to help you to worship the Lord more and to help you love other people the way that he wants you to. Because what we see in this passage is that Thomas had spent years and years with the Lord, but his beliefs about Jesus, his theology alone, could not save him or make him more like Jesus if it was lacking faith in Jesus. Only when Thomas repents from his disbelief and trusts in Jesus do we see that there's evidence that he's truly a Christ follower. And as happy as I imagine Jesus was that Thomas confessed his faith in him, verse 29 says that uh, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So the mass majority of humanity has not had the opportunity to see Jesus in the flesh. We will someday, when we die or when Jesus returns. But Jesus says that we are Blessed if we have believed in Jesus but have not yet seen him. Though we have not yet seen Jesus in the flesh, though we can be sure, according to Jesus' word, according to Scripture, that if we believe the gospel, then we are accepted and blessed right now by God because of what Jesus has done. In verses 30 to 31, John inserts a few comments. In verse 30, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So John's saying that Jesus did many other signs, which he doesn't take time to mention. I can't wait to hear about those in heaven. I'm just excited about that. And he says uh, that Jesus did these signs where? In the presence of the disciples. And so these signs were witnessed by people who could verify that it actually happened. And who were the main people who saw these signs again? His disciples, it says. So reality is when when Jesus rose from the dead, most of the resurrection accounts that Scripture talks about describe Jesus appearing to his disciples. And Jesus certainly may have appeared to non-Christians in his resurrection body before he ascended uh, to heaven but the most important ones that the gospel writers describe are those encounters between Jesus and his followers. And I was thinking about that this week. And you could think, well, wouldn't Jesus' resurrection have been more credible if Jesus had appeared to non-Christians and to people of power in the Roman Empire? Wouldn't, wouldn't the gospel be more widespread if Jesus had appeared to more people in his resurrection body And when we ask those questions, what I realize is we're actually, it's a subtle way of demanding another sign from Jesus. None of us know exactly why Jesus chose to appear to the people he did before he ascended to heaven, but this is the thing. As we read about Jesus' birth and life in the New Testament, we see that it is consistent with Jesus' style to reveal great things to people of little importance in the world's eyes. Think about Jesus' birth. Mary and Joseph are tucked away in a stall, and God the Father tells the angel Gabriel to go announce Jesus' birth, the birth of God. To whom? To the emperor? No. Shepherds go to the ones nobody would have ever guessed. And during Jesus' public ministry, who is the first person to whom Jesus reveals that he is the Messiah? The Samaritan woman at the well, who was a woman of ill repute and an outsider in her own community. And who does Jesus reveal himself to in his resurrection body? Primarily to fishermen and tax collector friends who had little influence in society and who had abandoned him when he needed them most. So the people to whom Jesus appeared in his resurrection body were actually the same type of people that Jesus often ref, uh, revealed great things to during his life on earth. And, and Paul confirms this when he writes to Christians in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So John writes in verses 30 to 31 again, let's read this together. You don't have to read, but both verses together. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So verse 31, John says that he has written these things. Why? So that you, Cedar Home, Stanwood, Washington, and World, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And when John says that... um, uh, or, and then John says that even believing isn't the end in itself that God wants for you. Believing is the way to have something, to grasp something. Believing is the way to have life in Jesus' name. So John wants you to believe. John wants you to stop disbelieving and to believe instead because it is through faith or believing that you will have life in Jesus' name, which he calls eternal life. An eternal life is friendship with God. It doesn't just start when you die. It begins the moment that you trust in Jesus. That's why Jesus said in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that you may know God. Do you know God today? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and as your God. If you don't, then today is the day to turn from yourself, to turn from the world and its solutions, and to turn to the solution that God has for you in his son Jesus Christ, to trust in him and start a friendship with God today. And if you want more information about that, I would love to pray with you or talk to you after the service. I'll be right up here. And if you do know Jesus here today, then let's continue to help one another turn away from our disbelief because it comes right back. Our problems, our sin, they're not absent from us in this life. We need to help each other in love and grace by the power of the Spirit to not disbelieve, to not doubt, but to daily turn to Jesus in faith. In the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses onto the Wittenberg door and the first thesis of the 95 was all of life is repentance. All of life is turning away from ourselves and from our doubt and trusting in Jesus. And for us Christians, if, if we're in conversations with non believers, this passage informs the way we can do those conversations. We want to season our conversations with kindness and compassion. The patience of Jesus, which he shows Thomas here. Okay. Let's love non-believers as people, not as projects. Can we be patient with non-believers just like the Lord has been patient with us? And we can share our testimony. I mean, this is what Jesus has done in my life. And let's primarily point them, though, to the Bible. Because it's God's authoritative, supernatural, living, self-testifying word. And if they're interested, well, I don't know if I can trust the Bible. Well, I have found few people in my conversations who are actually willing to study why the Bible is historically reliable. But if you're Interested in that, there are lots of good books, like The Case for Christ, that we could tell them about. And let's keep praying for people, because that's what they need. That's what we all need. We need God to do in our life something we can't do for ourselves. It's not a matter of finding new evidence. It's a matter of believing the evidence Jesus has given us. And then finally, as believers, let's, uh, let's continue to worship Jesus together and trust in him alone for salvation And together, let's follow in his footsteps. Let's seek to do that as we give of ourselves self-sacrificially, just like Jesus gave himself for us. And may we do that for the glory of Jesus' name and, and by God's grace and because of God's grace for our eternal joy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for appearing to us. And for giving us more than enough reasons to trust you. And we admit, God, that um, this world can't satisfy us. We let ourselves down. We are broken. And we can't get out of it on our own. And we need you to help us. So, Lord, um, may we turn to you and trust you every day. And for those who don't know you in here or maybe those of our, our loved ones or friends who don't know you, we lift them up, God, and we ask that you would help them and help them do for themselves, uh, help, them, help do to them what they cannot do for themselves, which is to believe this. Um, we know that you take no delight in the death of the wicked, God. You're merciful and gracious and patient and 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 even though you're that way, there's no excuse for our rebellion and our disbelief in you. So we need your help. God, would you please fill us with your love, make us abounding in faith and love and grace. Change us by the power of your word so that uh, we can worship you more, we can celebrate the gospel more um, so that we can love others And seek to love others more and more the way you want us to. And even though, even in our efforts to love others, we mess up. We thank you again for the gospel, which is our righteousness before God. You're everything to us, God. And uh, may this passage and your spirit be in us working powerfully this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.